Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, um, my name is Jeremy Griffin, and I want to make it very clear right here from the start that I am not the pastor of this church. I'm just a member, and I love being a member uh, because for about two years now, my wife and I have found so many great communities that we can get involved with here, and I believe that this morning, uh, the best way that I can introduce myself to you Uh, maybe so that we can get to know each other a little bit better, is if I just share three pockets of people that I belong to here at the Ave, so three communities. All right? Community number one. Um, I belong to the Avenue's recent baby boom. If it feels like... If it feels like if in the past three or four months there have been 45 babies born, Um, It's because that's pretty accurate. Uh, So my wife Kendall and I have um, really enjoyed this new chapter of life we're in as we have brought baby Levi into the world. Uh, He's three months old and he is really making life a beautiful adventure for us every day, something new, and we enjoy it so much. So that's pocket number one, part of the avenues, baby boom. Pocket number two, I, like many many, many people at this church. I'm a proud graduate of the Memphis Teacher Residency. So, yeah. And last but not least, um, pocket number three. Um, It's not often that I'm on this side of the room. Um, Usually, if you will see me not sitting with my wife, if you'll see me serving, it'll be back there um, at the soundboard. Uh, So I would be remiss if I didn't use this moment. Um, Could we just give a round of applause for our tech team? Um, For you to even hear me right now, um, I don't think a lot of people realize how many early mornings and long hours it has taken for us to get to this point. So many moments of troubleshooting and looking at Ock and just saying, I don't know what's going on. We got to figure it out, but I don't know what's happening. Um, Truth be told, we have been figuring this new room out a little bit. Um, You've probably noticed a few things. This room is interesting because it has quite a bit of an echo to it, just the way that it's assembled. And whether you know sound terminology or not, um, you'll probably know what I mean where occasionally this thing will happen. The best way I can describe it is, you know the THX movie intro from the 90s where it went Sometimes in this room, when the microphone is picking up the echo of what the speakers have sent out, and don't, I'm not going to lose you here, all right? When the speakers are sending out and it's echoing off the wall and it's picking back up onto the microphone, the microphone will then send that echo back out and it's going to keep on bouncing back and forth. And that's where you get this kind of sound. And as a sound guy, let me tell you, that is one of the most stressful moments 
Because if you see all these little cables and things up here, you have about 30 or so possibilities. What's the one thing, what's the one microphone that's causing all of this feedback? And it feels chaotic because the longer you take to find it, what's happening? the louder that sound is getting. And I don't wanna speak for my other fellow sound guys, I appreciate everything that you do, but when I find myself in a chaotic situation like that where the sound is just getting louder and louder and louder and louder, you know what seems to be the easiest solution for me instead of trying to figure out what the problem is? You just turn it all off. Let's just mute everything and let's restart. Well, as I was preparing for this message this week, the former youth pastor in me couldn't help but kind of draw a parallel of that to my own life. Um, last Sunday, Gus did an excellent job speaking on Paul's approach to suffering when we are called to rejoice in our suffering. And I was thinking, when I suffer, is my immediate response to rejoice? It's not. Is my response to identify the one thing that's causing me stress or suffering? It's not. What's my response? My response when I get overwhelmed by suffering is to shut it all off and to shut down and to think I'll deal with that another day and I let it build up. And I know that's not the right approach in last week just felt convicted as I was thinking about that. Um, our reading this morning, um, as I was studying this week, I was thinking, you know, what would have happened if Paul would have shut down at the moment of suffering? If when he finds himself in prison, he just says, you know what, that's it. I believe there's some pretty big implications we can make there. Um, but the one I really want us to think about is we see that the jailer, because of Paul's response to suffering, ends up coming to Christ. So what would happen if Paul shut down? We don't know. But what I do know is that when I find myself in moments of suffering, it doesn't have to just be me finding myself in prison like Paul did. When I find myself in moments of suffering, I tend to shut down. And I want to learn from Paul this morning, just like we did last week. I want to ask ourselves, what can we learn from this moment of Paul in prison? And before we unpack today's scripture a little bit more, uh, will you just bow your heads with me and let's pray. Dear Lord, as crazy as it sounds, thank you for suffering for moments of suffering, for moments where we are forced to analyze our priorities, our identities, what we place our hope in. Um, I, I just want to ask boldly that we turn to you when those moments come. That as we take some time today to analyze a moment of Paul's suffering, we can relate it back to our own life, that we can leave today not just encouraged with the new nugget of wisdom to chew on, Lord, but that we can move it into action. Personally, I just ask that you speak through me as only you can do. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So our reading today comes from a larger narrative in Acts chapter 16. Um, in this particular window of Acts, Paul and his newest sidekick, Silas, are fresh into Paul's second missionary journey. 
His first was successful. The gospel was spreading, the early church is growing, and Paul and Silas were excited to build off of the work that they had done. I can imagine like a family who's just now on summer break and who is anticipating a trip to Disney World. They are just eager to get started. They want to get their move on. However, and how many of our moments and our stories start with however, all right? However, Paul and Silas find themselves with one little hiccup. They're ready to get the move on, but they can't. They're in jail. They're not in the mission field. They are in prison. As if this family who's anticipating a trip to Disney World has suddenly had their flight canceled and now they're eating a subway foot long in Terminal A instead of a turkey leg on Main Street in Epcot, right, or wherever you are, right? You can find yourself in these moments where you had all these ideas of, well, let's go ahead and get our move on, but then something happens and we find ourselves stopped in our tracks. This morning, I want to ask ourselves, um, why? Why was Paul in this moment? Uh, the circumstances that precede and follow this are pretty interesting. Um, And as we analyze these circumstances, there's three things I want us to ask ourselves, okay? We're going to learn a little bit about Paul in this situation. First, where was Paul when this happened? Where was Paul? Then we're going to ask ourselves, where wasn't he? Where wasn't he? And then, where did he go from there? And as we talk about these three questions, we're going to ask ourselves the same three things. Where are we right now? Where aren't we? And where do we go from here? So first question, where was Paul? In this piece of scripture, where do we find him? We can just read one simple verse, the first one on your bulletin, verse 25 of Acts chapter 16. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. So if you're in my sixth grade English language arts class, I would ask you to annotate, underline, circle this word, prisoners. Why? It's a great context clue. What does that tell us? Where does Paul find himself? Where is Paul? Well, specifically, this tells us Paul was in prison. More specifically, Paul was in prison in Philippi, even more specifically, Philippi in Macedonia, but we don't really need the specifics here. Simply put, what we need to know is Paul was not where he wanted to be. That's what we need to know. Paul was not where he wanted to be. And church family, can I ask you something this morning? How many of us are not where we want to be? And let me clarify, I don't mean physically, right? I hope that you would want to be at church on a Sunday morning. I totally understand if when you saw me walk up here instead of Pastor Tim that maybe that changed a little bit. But let's not talk physically. I'm saying circumstantially. How many of us find ourselves in a moment right now where we are not where we want to be? It's not our 
ideal. Perhaps we find ourselves in a job we don't enjoy, in a relationship that seems strained, a city that continues to feel unfamiliar. Maybe we're stuck between sin and temptation and we just can't seem to escape it. Maybe we find ourselves in a cloud of confusion over potential next steps. Where are you right now? And is it where you want to be? If it's not, and I think we can all think of some circumstances where we might not be where we want to be, I want to ask you, how did you get there? How did you get there? Often when we analyze our circumstances, our position, where we find ourselves, one thing can seem abundantly clear to us when we look at it for face value. I'm here because of me. It's my fault. I'm not qualified or confident enough to get another job, so I remain in one that I'm not happy with. My relationship is strained because I am not mature enough or compassionate enough to work through relational issues. I am not fitting into my new environment because I cannot get out of my shell. I continue to fall into sin because I am not honest when it comes to accountability. My next steps remain cloudy because I am an indecisive person. When we analyze our circumstances, it can be so easy to turn that inwards and to say, why am I where I'm at? Because it's my fault. So what about Paul? Let's look at his circumstances. Why was he in jail? I'm going to bounce back a few verses. This is verse 16, and I want to read the NIV translation specifically, because I want you to see how a specific moment is translated. This is why Paul was in prison. Once when we, this is Luke and Paul, this is the group of missionaries, were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The Bible is more relatable than you think. Why was Paul in jail? Because he got annoyed. He got annoyed. Like when in my annoyance, if I'm at Chick-fil-A or McDonald's and it's one of those two drive-through lane situations and I see that one's going faster than the other so I move into the next and then the person that I left behind ends up getting served before me, I have no one else to blame except for me. My own impatience, it's my fault. Was it Paul's fault? Do you think Silas said, come on, Paul. If you would have been patient, we wouldn't be here right now. We could have been in the temple preaching by now. After all, this woman was proclaiming truth. 
Was it really all that bad? I see why Barnabas left. Paul could blame himself. He could. And I believe this is usually our default. Um, But teach sixth grade students for 15 minutes, um, and you'll soon find out that we have another default. We have one side where we say, it's all my fault. And then we have the other side that says, it's not my fault, it's theirs. So was it really Paul's fault? Who else could we blame here? Um, In InterVarsity Press's commentary of Acts chapter 16, this kind of bigger narrative, the following is stated, Paul is in prison because he has threatened the financial interest of the slave owners. So this slave girl was able to fortune tell, and because of that, they were able to make quite a bit of money off of it. It continues to say, whenever the gospel threatens vested interest, especially economic interest, it's bound to meet opposition. Sounds a whole lot better, right? So who was to blame? Paul's personal decision. He was annoyed. He took the spirit out of the girl, landed him in prison. Or could we blame the wickedness of the slave owners who were trying to profit off of this affliction? I don't know. I think we could kind of blame both. But I believe it's the wrong conversation. And I wholeheartedly believe that it's the wrong conversation for you too. Let's be real, some of us are in situations of hurt and suffering right now, and all we're doing is expending our energy either blaming ourselves or trying to find somebody else to blame for it. And I don't think that's the correct response. Look at Paul. Um, Where are you? Why are you there? Uh, These questions rely too much on what's called circumstantial thinking, right? We can spend all day cataloging the circumstances that got you to where you're at, what you or others did to get you there, but it's not the right approach. Instead, I want us to focus not on the circumstantial reality of where we are, but on something that I'm going to call the covenantal calling of your current situation. So it's time to shift our thinking. We're not gonna say this is the circumstantial reality. We're gonna say this is the covenantal calling of where I'm at. Here's a more simpler way to think of it. Let's not ask ourselves, how did I get here? Let's ask ourselves, why am I here? Why am I here? You know the famous words from Esther chapter four, right? For such a time as this. Could it be that your such a time as this is part of God's great redemption plan? Sure, it sounds nice, but right now, I think a lot of us could list a million more reasons why we would rather be somewhere else. Anywhere but here. How many of us could earnestly pray that this morning? God, I just need to be anywhere but here. Paul probably could. Why? Well, let's ask our second question then. So we've already established where was Paul. He's in prison. But where wasn't he? That's probably just as important of a question. For much of his ministry, um, Paul's approach to evangelism looks a little bit different than Jesus's, I think. Uh, While Jesus preferred teaching, I think we see a lot of smaller groups, right, in secluded locations, mountainsides and shores, the 12 disciples. Um, Paul loved a crowd. 
Uh, His Jewish background often sent him straight to the synagogue as he arrived at some of the biggest cities. He did ministries in Antioch, Ephesus, Athens, Corinth. These are capitals. These are big cities. The Paul of the past, we know. Saul, right? He loved a crowd. He was present at Stephen's stoning. He loved carrying this reputation of this Christian killer to be feared. But where was he now? We can assume uh, he probably wasn't in his favorite circumstances. Um, Secluded, in prison, a small group of people. He's not at the synagogue. He's not amongst the people. He's not evangelizing as he wanted to do. He's stuck in prison. So where wasn't he? He wasn't out in the field. But where did God have him? I believe God had him right where he needed to be. But did he feel that way? Um, I suffer from something that, that I've personally called the I knew it syndrome. I knew it syndrome. Whenever the slightest inconvenience comes my way, uh, my favorite soccer team concedes a goal. The train stops me on the way home from work. Uh, My son Levi cries in the car. The Alexa doesn't hear me the first time I speak to her. Uh, I crumble. I throw my hands up. I give up. And I mutter something along along the lines of like, I knew it. I knew it. It always ends up this way. We concede a goal. I knew it. We're going to lose. Levi's crying in the car. I knew it. It's rush hour. We're going to hit every single stoplight and he's going to cry the entire way. I knew that this would happen. If I'm driving home after a tough day at work, the train is there. I knew it. I knew it. Of course this terrible day would end in this way. This is going to add like 45 minutes to my drive home. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I'm a worst case scenario person when I find myself stressed. But you know who isn't? My wife, Kendall. She always talks me down. They'll come back. They can win this. And when they do, she just kind of sits there quiet and says, I knew it. It's not going to add that much time on the drive home. The light's going to turn green. Levi will fall back asleep when we start driving again. Or this is the one that gets me. She'll just calmly turn to Alexa and say, Alexa, turn the living room lamp off. And she listens to her, and I get so frustrated. See, she's much stronger at not allowing the circumstances of the moment to get to her. Uh, What's the difference? I think it's our framing. If I approach it with kind of this I knew it framing, then I'm already expecting uh, negativity. If I expect every light to be red when I'm driving Levi in the car, then I'm more likely to notice every red light and I'm more likely to notice any little noise he makes in his car seat and say, I knew it, it's about to happen. He's about to start crying. Framing is important. Any good MTR teacher knows this, that the way that you choose to present an activity or a situation in your classroom um, influences the reaction of the students, the way that they're going to participate in it. It's why I've learned now um, in my third year to take an extra 10 minutes when we're reading Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone to explain that there are some good Slytherins because I know that when we do the house sorting activity, I'm going to have to deal with some upset students if they find that they got Slytherins. So I frame it and I say, hey, don't beat yourself up about this. Just keep on reading the series. It all works out. So I frame because framing is important. Truth be told, I don't think that Paul was really annoyed by the circumstances he found himself here in prison. Why? 
The situation was already framed for him. A little bit earlier in Acts chapter 16, we're going to move even before the situation of why they find themselves in prison. I want you to take a look at what happened to Paul and Silas when they were trying to figure out where to go on missionary journey number two. It says, this is uh, verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen that vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul's mission was clear. Go to Macedonia regardless of what you want to do. The framing was clear. God wants me in Macedonia. And I'm sure that everything that happened from that point forward, Paul and Silas kind of shrugged at each other and said, this is where we need to be. It's like the old kind of Christianese saying goes, when God closes one door, what? He opens up another. I've even heard it say he opens up a window instead. Now, Paul and Silas are literally behind closed doors in Macedonia, and what do they end up doing? Acts chapter 16, verse 25. We've read it already. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners there were listening to them. Paul was not probably where he would have liked to be, He was not in Galatia or Asia, like verse 6 mentioned he had tried to do before God stopped him. He was not in front of the crowds that we can assume that he preferred. He really wasn't where he had imagined being. But what did he do? He decided to praise and sing hymns to God. Why? He knew it was where God wanted him to be. Wouldn't that be nice to have some assurance, to have a vision that says, hey, this is where you need to go, to have some sort of prophetic revelation that puts everything into focus for us? Wouldn't it be nice? I would love that. But sometimes it feels like we don't have that. Like we kind of have to live in this gray area where we're figuring things out. So I want to give you three verses of framing um, that I've just come across over the past two or three weeks that I've been preparing this that I believe can frame any situation that you are in. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? How many of you are facing trouble or hardship? This is prophetic revelation. You can use that as framing Isaiah chapter 43 verse 2 when you pass through the waters I will be with you and when you pass through the rivers they will not sweep over you when you walk through the fire you will not be burned the flames will not set you ablaze how many of you feel as if you're going through the murky waters how many of you feel as if you have been burned 
This can relate to you. This is godly framing. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's the type of framing we need. That's the type of framing that will keep you praising in prison. It's not a circumstantial framing. It's a covenantal one. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is not going to change. So instead of focusing on your circumstances, we can focus on this covenantal truth, these promises that God has made. And praise God that he's a God who follows through on his promises. Amen? Um, Don't miss this. This was really interesting when I was studying this. Um, You notice that when Paul and Silas are thrown in prison, um, never once does the scripture outright tell us that they prayed for God to remove them from prison. Never tells us what they were praying for. Instead, what it tells us is that they were praising him. How many of our lives could benefit from a little bit more praise in our prayer? and a little less petition. And I know that's a scary thing to think about. If you're trying to think about how to praise through suffering, I'll refer you to Gus's sermon from last week. So maybe you're not where you wanna be. Instead of asking God to remove you from the situation, how about you change your framing? Um, God, you are a God who keeps his promises. You are a God who can sustain me through whatever. I am here because you have me here and I trust that your goodness will shine through it, that your purpose will shine through it. What did Paul do? We don't know if he petitioned to God to free him. All we know is that he praised God even though he was in a difficult circumstance. He literally sang praises, hymns. Why? Because he knew who God was and he knew that God could act and that was enough for him. And boy, did God act. Acts chapter 16, verse 26 says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prisoner doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. We find Paul freed miraculously. So we ask ourselves, where does he go from here? Where do we go from here? We know where he was. We know where he wasn't. We know where he would likely want to be. But now that God has intervened, where do you go from here? Where does Paul go from here? Um, let's look at this through a circumstantial lens first, and that'll kind of get us where I want us to go. So circumstantially for Paul, he was in prison. He finds himself now in ideal circumstances, freedom. An earthquake has come. His chains are gone. He is free to leave and continue on with his ministry, maybe head to the ideal locations for ministry that he may have had in his mind when he first embarked on this journey. Simply put, Paul should run. He's been given a get-out-of-jail-free card. No longer bound. Go. Go and preach like you want to do. 
That's his circumstances. Now let's look at the circumstances of the jailer. Not so great. The weight of allowing these prisoners to escape is so heavy for him that his best solution he can come up with is to end his own life. His circumstances look incredibly bleak. What should he do now that these prisoners are free? He should run. Paul should run. He should take advantage of these great situations and get out of there. The jailer, he should run. He should take advantage of these situations that is not ideal and get out of there for the safety of his own life. Yet neither runs. Why? God, that's why. Neither of them run because God shows up. I was first introduced to this um, idea of circumstantial versus covenantal framing through uh, Craig Rochelle's book, Winning the War in Your Mind. Um, it's a great resource for anyone who's wanting uh, to learn more about the brain's approach to stressors, right? Stressors like finding yourself in prison, unfairly jailed, and how spiritual truth and framing can be applied to every situation. So this is kind of where this activity comes from. I want to practice what uh, Pastor Craig says in his book and reframe the situation then through a covenantal frame, and, and maybe then we'll see why neither of them runs. For Paul, Paul doesn't run because God showed up. He was faithful through Paul's faithfulness. Paul had no reason to fear. He had, just as he had done before, proven that he has taken care of him, that he is where he needs to be, and the circumstances of this remind Paul that it's okay. Is that true for us? Do we turn to the Lord when our circumstances finally turn to our favor? If you're anything like me, I spend a lot of time asking God for change, to change the situation, and when it finally changes, I don't spend a lot of time thanking him for it or acting on behalf of it. For the jailer, why didn't he run? He didn't run because he witnessed the miraculous. That'll be enough to get anyone praising God. But I believe that the real reason he didn't run is because he was shown grace in a very real, very personable, very relatable way. And that'll do it. I think that that's the coolest part of the story. Bigger than the earthquake that has freed Paul and Silas is the fact that when they were freed, they stayed. They stayed because that'll preach way more to this jailer than any sort of miraculous moment will. Throughout Acts chapter 16, um, we see two people facing two very different but difficult circumstances. One is Paul in prison, and the other is the jailer responsible for the failure of the prison. Neither are where they want to be in their current situation, but their responses are my challenge to you this morning. Paul, when faced with a difficult circumstance, reacted with praise. The jailer, when faced with a difficult circumstance, reacted in belief. Where are you? Is it where you want to be? Where aren't you? Can you think of 30,000 different places you'd rather be, different circumstances? It doesn't matter. You're here right now, and where do we go from here? Do you need to turn to the Lord in praise? Rejoice that he is faithful no matter what you are going through. Trust that he has a perfect plan. Trust that he will sustain you. Or do you need to turn to belief? 
Lord, I believe that you are with me. I believe that you can carry me through this difficult moment. Will you be like Paul and Silas, turn to praise, trusting this is God wants you, where, where God wants you to be, or will you be like the jailer, so moved by God's goodness that you have no other choice but to ask, what must I do to be saved? How do I get in on that? Uh, throughout our last sermon series, Tim said this. I wrote it down because it's just so, um, so good. When God reveals himself, the only appropriate response is faith. We see that in the jailer. Let's wrap this up with verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. A temporary problem almost kept the jailer from an eternal answer. You noticed what he did the second his circumstances didn't go his way. His initial response was to not face these circumstances, to not face these consequences. He considered ending his life. That temporary problem almost kept the jailer from just a few moments later hearing this eternal truth, receiving this eternal hope. And I'd hate for that to be the case for us. Some of us in this room are in the midst of temporary problems, circumstances that are not ideal. Like the jailer, um, have you experienced grace? Have you been led to believe? Do you believe in this hope that changed this man's life? forever. Do you believe in this hope that sustained Paul and Silas through a situation that was less than ideal? Wherever you are, we can all answer the same question. Where do we need to go from here? Some of you, some of us have been so blinded by our circumstances that we have consistently lost sight of God's goodness. Some of you are so busy, some of us are so busy trying to play the blame game that we have missed out on opportunities to sit in the richness of God's grace. I can't believe that the first reaction to prison was praise. That's my desire for myself, and it's my desire for you. Um, if you are in need of further spiritual perspective, a conversation about belief. Um, like the jailer said, what must I do? Um, I know we have elders and deacons here who would love to talk you through those steps. But before I leave you, um, I want to leave you with one more quote um, from Craig Rochelle's book. This wrote it down on my phone, turned to it often. Remember, when you are overwhelmed by your circumstances, Remember that when you've had enough, God is 
enough. When you feel in your circumstances that you've had enough, remember that God is enough. He's enough to sustain you in less than ideal circumstances. He is enough to rescue you from any pain or suffering that you may experience. Regardless of where we are right now, regardless of where we'll be 20 minutes, 20 months, 20 years, God can sustain us. When we feel like we've had enough, let's remember that God is enough. Praise him for that. Will you pray with me?